Okay, calm down. Wow. How are we doing? Some, I need some, somebody to tell me they're doing okay or bad or doing good? Okay. Thank you. It's great to see you. Welcome. Uh, my name is Christopher. That's what my wife calls me. She doesn't call me Chris. She calls me Christopher. Um, if you're new and you're here, we're really happy you're here. Uh, you can go ahead and get your Bibles out if you have them. Turn to Luke chapter 11. We're still in our value series. Uh, I hope you're getting something out of it because we're going to be in it for a while longer yet. Um, right now we're talking about the value of owning a supernatural lifestyle. Last week we talked about cultivating an awareness of a, a sensitivity to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. Um, because the Holy Spirit speaks through whispers, not shouts. So we need to always be walking in an openness to the Lord, interfering with our life, changing our plans, uh, which means creating a space in our hearts and in our mind, in our life where we can be actively listening, leaning into the Holy Spirit, paying attention, and giving credibility to those, those nudges and those impressions that we might get. Uh, this week I want to I go in a little bit different direction. This week I want to talk about prayer. And what I want you to think about is... When we talk about owning a supernatural lifestyle, ultimately, prayer is, if not, uh, the, it's, it's one of, if not the most powerful supernatural thing we do, right? What's interesting about that is many people that would say that I, like, I don't believe in a supernatural still believe in prayer, right? Which seems like kind of cognitive dissidence to me, because prayer is purely supernatural. It's asking a supernatural God to intervene supernaturally. Back in the 4th century A.D. in Antioch, uh, in Syria, there was a preacher named John of Antioch. The, Greek, the Greeks nicknamed him the golden-mouthed because he was this amazing preacher. He had a sermon on prayer in which he said this. The potency of prayer has subdued the strength of fire. It has bridled the rage of lions. It has expelled demons. It has broken the chains of death. It has assuaged diseases. It has rescued cities from destruction. It has stopped the sun in its course. It has arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. All of these things are, are things found in the Bible that prayer did. What he's trying to say is prayer is supernaturally powerful and effective. So that's where we're going to go. Let's start in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. And I love these verses. So one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight, say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me, the door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. So here's the deal. It's not that most of us don't know that we should pray. Or even, I don't think necessarily that we don't know how to pray. I think it's deeper than that. I think that a lot of us 
don't necessarily know what to pray. Like, is it okay to pray for myself? Is it okay to pray for a job interview or a new car? Is Jesus okay with all that? Or does it have to be only for, like, healings and stuff like that? And I think even deeper than that, honestly, a lot of us don't even know why we pray. Didn't Jesus actually say something like, the Father knows what you need before you ask him? Which is, which is great, Jesus, but it begs, kind of begs the question, why ask in the first place? So a lot of us don't even get the what or the why behind prayer. So here's the deal. Um, put your finger right there in Luke 11. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes and work through it. But let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. Let's back up the bus and talk about the why and the what around prayer before we get to the how of prayer, okay? Genesis chapter 1. Have a look at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So first, if you're, if you're taking notes, write this down. Not a lot of note taken today. Uh, didn't see anybody move for their notebook, but that's okay. God's, maybe you're doing it on your phone, that's fine. God's original intent, this is number one, God's original intent was for free, intelligent, creative human beings to collaborate with him in running the world. God's original intent was for free, intelligent, creative human beings to collaborate with him in running the world. All human beings are created in the image of God, right? To rule over the earth under God's authority. Not as an android with no free will or as a puppet on a string, but as a royal son, a royal daughter, a, as a prince or a princess, to rule with the king of the universe over the world, to collaborate with God in writing human history. That's what you were created for. But then if you know the story, you turn the page, chapter 2, have a look at verse 15. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So humanity is free to choose between the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The choice between allegiance to the king and his kingdom or rebellion against the king and his kingdom. And we know what happens. Tragically, humanity chose, chooses rebellion. Turn to page chapter 3, verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she, so she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Point two. Due to the freedom that God built into human nature, the world has gone wrong. The idea here in the story is that the... The root problem of the world is not <clears throat> lack of access to education or the wrong type of government or uh, the wrong political party in power or socioeconomic inequality. Those are all symptoms. The root problem is that the human heart is bent out of shape in the wrong direction. And the rest of the story of the Bible is about God's solution to that problem. Turn for one more story to Exodus chapter 32. 
I just want to read a story that Jesus would have grown up reading. If you know the story of the Bible, you know that after the fall, God started to kind of put things back together through a family uh, with, a, with a man named Abraham and his sons and his sons and his sons, 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 and his daughters and his daughters, daughters, and so on, and, and into an entire nation. But we quickly realized that the nation that's supposed to be the solution to the problem is still part of the problem. So chapter 20, chapter, what did I say? 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who will go before us, because this Moses, the man you brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron replied to them, Take off the gold rings that are on, on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, fashioned it in, with an engraving tool, and made it into an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Verse 6. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Not exactly sure what revelry is, but pretty sure it's bad. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. I love that. God's like, hey Moses. Your people have become corrupt. Those are your people, Moses, not my people. It's like when you have a child who's misbehaving and you're like, that's your side of the family. That's your kid, right? That's all you. Your kid is indulging in revelry and has become corrupt. Verse 8. They have been quick to turn away from what I have commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, they, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone. Notice that. Leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. You see what's happening here? This is fascinating. This is God processing his emotions with a human partner. This is God processing his emotions with a human partner. It is a conversation between God and his friend. So keep reading, verse 11. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Now Moses pushes back. And now it's like this blame game. He said, these are your people. You did this. You brought your people out with, a great, with great power and mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. He's quoting God back to God. This is what Christians back in the day called contending prayer. Notice that Moses' prayer is not passive. He's not like, okay, God, whatever you want. Start over with me. Like, smoke those fools in their golden calf. Oh, you know. No, for him, he, it's active. He's striving with God. There is, and I want to say this carefully, there's a time to pray, your will be done. And there's a time to contend with God and say, Absolutely not. 
Absolutely not, God. That can't be right. That can't be how the story goes. And to contend with God, to strive, to argue, to lament, to plead your case before God. I love the audacity here. Like you hear this conversation between Moses and God, and it it reads almost like they're on equal footing, right? But they aren't on equal footing. That's what makes this amazing. There is this dialogue and openness with God and Moses. His prayer here is that God would relent. And watch what happens. Verse 14. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. That word relented in Hebrews, in Hebrew can be translated as repented or God changed his mind. So wait a minute. It's saying here that God changed his mind. And I cannot tell you how many times I have read a scholar or a teacher bending over backwards trying to explain this line away. Being like, well, I know it says that he changed his mind, but obviously he didn't really change his mind, right? Like God, we know from systematic theology that God's immutable, he doesn't change, yada, yada, yada. That's funny because it says he changed his mind. The reality is God here has a dynamic back and forth argument with Moses and he changes his mind. He is a father who who responds when his children pray. And this is not a lower view of God, but a higher view of God. He would be less of a God if he were not open to good ideas from free, intelligent, creative beings that he's in relationship with. Prayer can move God's heart, and with that, move God's hand. Meaning your life's going one way, you pray, God responds, it goes another way. Now thankfully, he's a good, loving father who knows when to say yes and when to say no. But you have a role to play. Prayer is talking with God about what the two of you are doing together. And you play a key role in human history. All that leads me to point three, and it's this. Prayer is a relational collaboration. We as royal sons and royal daughters collaborate with God in in running the world to bend human history in the right direction. We are not merely passive set pieces in a prearranged cosmic drama, but we are active participants with God in writing and directing the action. Prayer, therefore, is much more than asking God for this or that outcome. It is communion with him. It is a conversation. It is a give and take. It's a talking and listening. And we are invited to join him in directing the course of the world. Now, with all that in mind, let's go back to Luke chapter 11. Jesus here gives us a template for prayer. He says, pray like this. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Notice that right in there, that key line, your kingdom come. What does God assume right there? Your kingdom come. This assumes that the kingdom of God isn't all the way here yet, right? In Jesus' mind's eye, heaven is the place where God's will is done all the time. Earth is the place where God's will is done some of the time. On earth, there are other wills at play. There's your will, there's my will, there's about 7 billion other people's will on the planet. There's the angelic will, there's demonic will. Nature, in a sense, has a will. And of course, God at the center of it all has a will. There's all sorts of wills at play. Also, Jesus assumes that prayer is a, is a relational collaboration where we join with him, with God, to see the kingdom of God come to earth. We pray your kingdom come. For Jesus, prayer 
first off, is not a religious guilt trip, check the box kind of thing. But for Jesus, it actually makes a difference in the kingdom of God. It seems to me that Jesus is saying that the primary way that we usher in the kingdom of God is through prayer. I think probably very few of us actually kind of believe that. Most of us think the primary way that you you usher in the kingdom of God is through hard work, right? Preaching the gospel, evangelizing, service, right? All those things are important. But the primary way that we join with God to usher in the kingdom of God, as it is in heaven, is through prayer. We put our hope not in Washington, D.C., but in heaven. Not in a man or a woman, a politician or a party, but in Jesus, in Jesus alone. And pray that the kingdom of God would come. For the will of God to be done in our nation and around the world as it is in heaven. Like, yes, you can pray... God be with us, help me with this test, bless this food. You can pray for traveling mercies. I'm not sure exactly what those are. Put your seatbelt on, drive the speed limit, stop texting when you drive. Those are traveling mercies. But there's nothing wrong with those prayers. But here's how I would encourage you to pray if you don't know already. Number one, pray scripture. Claim the promises of God, like Moses. To do that, you'll need to know the promises of God. But pray scripture. Remind God of what God promised. And secondly, pray for the advance of God's kingdom in the lives of, our, of your family, community, and around the world. You can never go wrong praying scripture, claiming the promises of God, and praying for the advance of God's kingdom. That's intercession. Petitioning God on behalf, uh, on behalf of the church or your family or your community or the world. The theologian Karl Barth said this. He said, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Let's go back to Luke. Jesus says, he goes on, he said, suppose you have a friend, hypothetical situation, and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, which is a big ask. That's a lot of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. So huge problem. Hospitality was a big deal back then because no, hospi- no, no hotels, no restaurants. You had to rely on the hospitali- hospitality of others if you were traveling. He says, and suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. Can't get up and give you anything. I love this, I love this story. You don't think of Jesus is really funny? This is a funny story. It's a little bit lost in translation in a a few millennia, but it's funny. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Now, I love this. This is a a type of teaching that was popular in the first century. Basically, in it, a rabbi usually would compare and contrast one bad thing with another good thing in order to make a point. Jesus is saying, listen, if you can get a grumpy, lazy narcissistic neighbor to answer your prayer, so to speak. How many of you have a neighbor like that that's just kind of less than awesome? (laughs) Nobody's going to... Okay. All right, anyway, imagine that person in your mind's eye. You got it? So just if if you can get somebody like that to answer your prayer, just because you knock and you annoy and you text and you email... 
and you don't give up, how much more can you get a loving, generous, selfless father with good intentions toward you? Answer your prayer. He goes on. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Jesus is making it very simple here. Ask. Ask. Then, then ask. Ask the Father. Ask with shameless audacity. Don't stop. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. Just don't go away from the door. Just knock and knock and knock. Don't go away. I'm in bed. Too bad. I'm going to keep knocking. Knock, 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 knock. Like, just don't stop. Don't let up. And, and notice for Jesus, this is really important. The thing about the New Testament is that it was written before word processors, before paper, before Gutenberg. And so everything's about economy. Keep it short. So when you have a teaching or a story that takes up a lot of space, that tells you, slow down and pay attention. This is, this is not a short teaching. This is a very long teaching on prayer. And notice that Jesus is kind of saying the same thing over and over and over again. Don't stop. Keep asking him with shameless audacity. Why is he so insistent on this? Could it be that, one, seriously, how many of us have problems and issues in our life that we've never prayed about? Maybe we have not because we ask not. How many of us are angry or upset or mad at God about things that we've never actually prayed for? I think the reality is that a lot of us don't even ask in the first place. Do we just think it's going to happen? What's going to happen is going to happen with or without my prayers, or is it something else? I don't, I'm not sure. But could it be that Jesus is so insistent on this because, one, we don't even ask in the first place. And then, two, because when we ask, we ask with timidity rather than shameless audacity. I believe that often in our desire to please God and come under the authority of the Father in a good, healthy way, I wonder if sometimes we forget that God is our Father. And in the same way that you want to please God your Father, guess what God, who is a good Father, wants? He wants to give you your desires. He wants to say yes. Now, He loves you enough to override your desires when they aren't right, but still we forget. Absolutely, your will be done, but we forget that God is your Father, and He cares about what's going on in your life. Third, could it be that Jesus is so insistent because we're so quick to give up? It's tiring to pray in general, right? Am I right? Prayer sometimes just feels like hard work. It kind of is. Paul says, labor with me in prayer. Isn't that an interesting choice of words? Work with me in prayer. It's almost as if he's acknowledging, hey, it doesn't come easy for most of us. So labor with me, work with me, sweat with me in prayer. Let's be honest, it's tiring, especially when you pray day after week after month after year and there's nothing or just a little bit. It's so easy to just give up and throw in the towel. But we have to remember, God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. It takes time to figure out, is this God saying no? Or is this God actually saying, keep asking? Keep seeking, keep knocking, don't give up. 
Shameless audacity, don't give up. Jesus here is like over-making his point. Ask with shameless audacity. Don't stop asking with shameless audacity. Most of us, honestly, probably had relationships with our parents where if, if we do what they want us to do and we leave them alone, then it goes well for us. But if we pester them, if we bother them, then there's, it's going to go bad. There's going to be some disappointment and there's going to be some discipline. The Bible is, it says the exact opposite is true about your relationship with God. He delights in our persistence. Isaiah 62, 6-7 says, O Jerusalem, I have posted watchmen on your walls. They will pray day and night continually. Take no rest. All of you who pray to the Lord, give the Lord no rest until he completes his work until he makes Jerusalem the pride of the earth. So God loves being bothered by his children. So much so that he literally appoints people to, to, to bother him. Give me no rest. Don't stop asking me. Don't stop petitioning me. Don't stop begging me until Jerusalem is established. So that's a far cry from how we interact with our children, how we interact with our parents, right? Our parents are more like, Give me some space before I harm you. You've asked 32 times. If you ask me again, the answer is no. So in this, God's saying, listen, bother me. Pester me. Keep knocking. Keep knocking on my door. Give me no rest until I answer you. He delights in the persistent asking. Paul writes this in 1 Timothy. He says, I urge you then... Urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our, our Savior. We are to petition God for all sorts of things in line with his kingdom. This is good and it pleases God our Savior. I love this from the theologian Walter Wink. This is a long quote, but just let this sink in. He says, Prayer is spiritual defiance of what is in the way of what God has promised. Intercession, which is just another word for prayer, intercession visualizes an alternative future to the one apparently faded by the momentum of current forces. Prayer infuses the air of a time yet to be into the suffocating atmosphere of the present. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. Even a small number of people firmly committed to the new inevitability on which they have fixed their imaginations can decisively affect the shape the future takes. Intercession changes the world and it changes what is possible. It creates an island of relative freedom in a world gripped by unholy necessity. A new force appears that hitherto was only potential. All of Jesus' teachings on prayer feature imperatives. Ask, seek, knock. In prayer, we are ordering God to bring the kingdom near. It will not do to implore. We have been commanded to command. We are required by God to haggle with God for the sake of the sick, the obsessed, the weak, and to conform our lives to our intercessions. This is a God who invents history in interaction with those who hunger and thirst to see right prevail. When we pray, we are not sending a letter to a celestial white house where it is sorted among piles of others. We are engaged rather in an act of co-creation in which one little sector of the universe rises up 
It becomes translucent, incandescent. Vibratory center of power that radiates the power of the universe. History belongs to the intercessors who believe, believe the future into being. If this is so, then intercession, far from being an escape from action, is a means of focusing for action and of creating action. By, me, by means of our intercessions, we veritably cast fire upon the earth and trumpet the future into being. How good is that? How many of you want to be those intercession, intercessors? Who wants to be part of a small group of people firmly committed to the inevitability on which they have fixed their imagination? I do. I want to encourage you, owning a supernatural lifestyle means we imagine with the Holy Spirit an alternate reality, an, an alternate future. And we haggle with God. And we don't stop haggling with God. And we order God to bring the kingdom near, like he tells us to. You get to speak with the king of the universe, but you don't have to come as a beggar off the street, but as a son, as a daughter adopted into his family. To take up your rightful place with shameless audacity. To join God in running the world through prayer. That's amazing. Could you stand with me? Would you agree with me in prayer? As we finish up here? <clears throat> Holy Spirit, it is my prayer that this would be a place that is hungry for dynamic, powerful moves of your spirit a place that hungers for you. I pray that there would be a desire in us when it comes to you uh, to set our hearts on fire for you. I pray that we would pester and bother and ask and seek and knock. That we would want and desire our neighbors to come to know you. That we would want and desire our coworkers to come to know you. I pray that there would be this passion in us to see the sick healed regularly among us. I pray that it would be a regular thing here where you would just supernaturally bend the laws of the universe. Lord, we pray that your spirit would just bless and dwell in this place in a way that there is no mistake that you are here and that you are at work. So we ask you this, knowing that these things are happening at some level, but as children of a generous father, we know there is more and we don't want to be satisfied with this portion. Thank you for what we've seen, but we want more. Help us, Jesus. For your beautiful name that we pray. Everybody said, amen. Amen. The ministry team wants to come forward. If you like prayer for any reason, um, don't leave with that burden. Come and get prayed for. Amen. Have a great week.